If you're able to remain standing just a bit longer, I would invite you to do so. Either way, please take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, we're going to read verse 12 this morning. It's on page 1013 if you'd like to use a Bible from the church. Thank you guys for helping us to sing this morning, for leading us. James chapter 5, verse 12. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God said. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There's no word like your word. And so as we now look at this verse that we've just read, we would ask for your help, for the very presence of your spirit to be with us. Help me as I speak. Help us as we receive your word. May your word and what it says to us this morning shape us where we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, James begins verse 12 by saying, above all, my brothers, underscoring that there is something of urgency and importance in his statements here in verse 12. While it's just one verse, we should not conclude by that, well, it must not be very important. In fact, this is not the first time, even though we're toward the end of our study in the book of James, this is not the first time that James has dealt with our speech, our tongue. In chapter 1, he said that we re, he reminded us that we should be, in fact, slow to speak. In chapter 1, he reminded us that it is the nature of true religion. It consists of the ability to keep a tight rein on our tongue. In fact, every chapter thus far in James has dealt with, on some level or another, something pertaining to our speech and our use of the tongue. This morning, as we look at what James says to us from verse 12 here in chapter 5, there's two things I want to look at, and we're not really going to look at these in a sequential way. I'm going to probably bounce back and forth, but I want us to consider what is the deeper prohibition here in this verse, and yet also what is the greater requirement found in this verse. Essentially, the focus of this verse is that you and I who name the name of Jesus Christ, that we would be people of honesty, that we would be truthful people. He frames that in a negative way, and he frames that in a positive way. Negatively, the, the prohibition, and yet even the, uh, the deeper prohibition, where he says, uh, do not swear. Now, he, when he means swear here in this passage, it's, it pertains to the taking of oaths or vows. He's not speaking of swearing 
like we sometimes used it in our culture to be a synonym to cussing or or using bad words. That's dealt with elsewhere in Scripture. But here, swearing is, it pertains to the taking of oaths and vows. It is invoking God's name in an oath to guarantee the truthfulness of what we would say. There is nothing new about lying. Psalm 116, verse 11, states that all men are liars. And I'm sure that includes not just a few ladies as well. In other words, it's a universal human condition. In Romans chapter 3, in describing the the depravity of mankind. One of the descriptors it uses is that deceit is on our tongues. There's a crisis of truthfulness in our culture today. Not Not that untruthfulness is a new phenomenon. It's been with us for quite some time, and yet it seems like in certain eras of history, uh, falsehood and untruthfulness has been on the edges of a society and a culture, whereas now it seems to be front and center. There has to be a pattern of truthfulness for a culture, for a society to function, for a culture, for a society to thrive, for a culture, for a society to survive. If if untruthfulness stays on the edges, we can kind of put up with that. In other words, we can we can operate uh, knowing that the salesman uh, that we are dealing with at this moment is going to fudge a little bit and oversell the product. We would just kind of let that old adage swirl around in our head as they're talking. Let the buyer beware. But when a commitment to untruthfulness operates no longer just on the edges of society, but in the very center of society, well, we can't operate well if our government and government health officials and politicians and medical professions misrepresent a medical treatment for their own personal financial gain and or for their own advancement of whatever hidden agenda they may have. Society cannot sustain that degree, that level of untruthfulness. So we have a crisis. It's a crisis not just at the edges of our culture, but it's a crisis at the very center of our culture. And it's here in that crisis we see this prohibition that we, that we be a people who, well, let's weigh into this, who do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. That, that connects very closely to what our Lord said. In fact, I would suggest to you that James here in this one verse has given us a quicker, skinnier version 
of something that his brother, Jesus, had shared in an even greater, more elaborate way. Let me just read a couple of passages from the Gospel of, of Matthew. Uh, for instance, in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, beginning in chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard it said uh, of, of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, or for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make uh, one hair white or black. And then he says, what James says very similarly at the end there in verse 37 of Matthew 5, let what you simply say be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Or a series of woes that Jesus issues to the religious establishment of his day found in Matthew chapter 23. Listen to this, Matthew 23 beginning at verse 16 Woe to you blind guides, you who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. If anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound to his oath. You fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple uh, that has made the gold sacred? You say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, uh, swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. You see the parallel, the commonality between what James has said briefly here in chapter 5 and what our Lord has said in the gospel of Matthew. And in each case, I think you see what is the deeper prohibition and yet also the greater requirement. Well, what is that greater prohibition? I would suggest to you that neither the Old Testament nor what James or Jesus is saying to us, um, uh, prohibit all oaths in every situation. I think what they are clearly teaching us is that oaths are not necessary in order to establish truthfulness. In other words, uh, and part of what even our Lord is parsing out in greater detail, uh, when, when he argued, well, you, you, you shouldn't swear by the, by the temple, or you shouldn't swear by Jerusalem, or you shouldn't swear by the, the, the gold that, is on the, uh, that makes up the temple. And in a sense, kind of the backstory is what some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day had, a, had con had configured is they had configured a way to be good liars. They they wouldn't they 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 wouldn't swear by the name of God and did not keep that oath. But in their mind, well, 
If I swear by the name of God, I better keep that because otherwise I would be taking the name of the Lord in vain. But what I can do is I can swear by the gold on the temple and that not really be as binding of an oath. I I can swear by the temple and that just not be as big of a deal. You see what they had adopted? They had, they had adopted a, a highfalutin methodology uh, to, to invoke swearing and oaths in, in a way that wouldn't be, in their mind, morally binding upon them to follow through on their commitments. You know what James and Jesus, I would suggest to you, are saying to us in the passages that we've considered is... They are preventing an oath to be made in any form, whether it be in the name of God or in the name of the temple or in the name of the gold of the temple, to prevent the use of oaths as a ruse, as as a fake appearance of truthfulness, which really functioned as a means of trickery and deceit. That, that, that they would put together some sort of technical fancy wording as actually an escape hatch to keep from following through on the truthfulness of their words. They would substitute the name of God for other terms, and thus the vow would be less binding, which is a huge lesson in missing the point. In other words, it doesn't require an oath in order for us to be obligated to be truthful. We ought to be truthful. I mean, the the greater requirement here is every time we open our mouths, it should be for the agenda of advancing truth. It should be for the cause of telling truth. You and I are not required to tell the truth only when we swear or take an oath. You and I are required to tell the truth every time we talk. If we say yes to something, then we should honor the obligation of that yes. If we say no to something, we should honor the commitment that we are making regardless of if we've made some sort of fancy oath or vow. The Old Testament never really required, it didn't prevent the taking of oaths, nor did it require the taking of oaths. They were done for voluntary means. Someone might, out of the gratitude of their heart, be thankful to the Lord for his provision, for his rescue, and out of that, they would, they would make a commitment. They would swear an oath or make a vow that, that they would bring some sort of offering or they would bring some sort of sacrifice or, or they would obligate themselves in some sort of lifestyle or behavior. Like, for instance, I'm thinking of the, the Nazarite vow. Uh, and, and in other words, they would commit themselves to something and they would publicly... Uh, swear that they will honor the commitment that they are making. The scriptures nowhere required that. Scriptures nowhere prevented that. But what the scriptures did say is that the moment you took an oath, then you must be true to what you have swore. A wonderful description of virtue is listed in Psalm 15, and particularly in verse 4, one of the traits of a person who is virtuous. It says there, 
in, in Psalm 15, 4, who swears to his own hurt and does not change his mind. Or coupled with Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4, it says, pay what you vow. It is better to not vow than to vow and not pay. It was, no, no one required you to take that oath. But once you took that oath, you have given your word. And no amount of fancy rewording or reconfiguration uh, would undo the need to honor what you've committed to do. We sometimes will use phrases. I don't know if we mean those on the same necessarily standard of, of serious oaths, but, uh, but sometimes we will, we will use certain phrases to qualify that what I'm about to say is truthful. As though prior to that, <laughs> no telling what I said. You know, it may, not be, may be truthful, may not, who knows. But, you know, we, but some people say, no, as God is my witness... I don't think it's morally wrong to say that, uh, but what I would suggest to you is whether you preface your statement as God is my witness or whether you don't preface your statement by that phrase, either way, we should be truthful. Cross my heart, hope to die. Did we use that, do we use that as adults or just kids? Yeah, I don't know, but... Um, now, cross my heart, hope to die. In other words, what I'm about to tell you is truthful. Now, up to this point, who knows if it's truthful or not? But do you see the configuration there that just like that we we were we were obfuscate, um, just a plain meaning of words. I swear on my mother's grave. Well, now, just prior to that, were you lying to me? And now you're going to stop lying to me because now you're swearing on your mother's grave? Uh, or I like this one, and we all use this one. I think it's just more of a rhetorical device, but if I can be completely honest with you, well, what were you just a minute ago? You, you see, it, it, it doesn't, you don't need, we, 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 Christians ought not need to have to preface what they're about to say uh, to qualify, now, this is once every blue moon, but I'm about to tell you the truth, and so i got to qualify this. It's analogous to, I think, what James and Jesus are shooting for, aiming at in, in, in our passage this morning. The, 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 the deeper prohibition is not merely on the surface of, of taking every notion of oath or swearing off the table but it is shooting for us to know that we should honor our words. We should stand by our words. Um, whether that is done in a sophisticated sworn oath or whether that has no preface to it whatsoever, it nevertheless requires that the next words out of our mouth to be truthful and honest. Now, now I understand there are some Christian traditions that believe that Christians should not swear oaths. So, for instance, if they were called to be a, a witness at a court of law, whereas our custom today that you would go and stand before the judge and then the bailiff or somebody would have you hold your hand on the Bible and swear that you would tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, 
There, there are some Christian groups who, whose conscience does not let them do that. I, I, and I have, you know, I, I have no dog in that fight. If, if your conscience does not let you swear an oath, then, well, well then you shouldn't swear an oath. I, I don't think that's really um, what the Scripture requires of us. I think what the Scripture requires of us is that we not use oaths as a tricky means uh, to either be truthful or not truthful. Whether we swear or not, it should just simply be truthful. In other words, everything we say should be elevated to the level of, 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 of importance of truthfulness, that we should be people who consistently day in and day out remain true to our word without an oath. Just simply yes or no should suffice. Now, that's God's moral will for us. The reality is there's narrow one of us in this room who have perfectly lived up to that standard. All men are liars. Deceit is universally found in our mouths. I don't know, is that not a big deal? Well, when you read the end of the book, when you read the end of the scriptures, when it starts to make the final differentiations between living in the presence of God or being cast into hell, listen to what is stated as to what is part of the moral differentiation. In Revelation 21, verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, uh, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, up to that point, you're like, yeah, that's where different people need to go. Uh, but then it throws in this one. And then all of a sudden, it, it gets even us Baptists. It, it says, and all liars. Their portion, their portion, there, the people that just listed. Um, so all liars, their portion will be in the lake uh, that burns with fire and sulfur. That would be hell. He'll pick it up again in case, you, in case we missed it when you read in Revelation chapter 22. So that was chapter 21. And, and it's just like, I, wait a minute, you may, it, may have, you may, it may have dozed off during, during, uh, during verse 8 of chapter 21. So let's pick it up again in, in, in verse uh, 15 of chapter 22 where he talks about those who will be outside the city of Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. And um, once again, one of the characteristics of those who will be outside the city uh, will be those who, who practice falsehood. In other words, those who, who, who lie. You say, well, I don't know. God's probably just joking about stuff like that. That he's going to send all liars to hell? 
And, and, and I mean, how did you start us off? You started us off with all men are liars. Right. So, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. So in a horrible, flattening reality, God, who is truthful in everything he says, says that no liars will be in his eternal city. All liars will be cast into the lake of fire. The one being in the universe who is incapable of telling a lie has just declared the destiny of all liars. We should feel that as what it really is. That is a devastating truth. That is an indicting, condemning truth. And yet, that's not the only thing bouncing around in the scriptures. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the apostle Paul writes to Timothy and says, the saying is trustworthy. Praise God. He said, what I'm about to tell you is the truth. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is hope-filled truth. This is saving truth. This saying is trustworthy and worthy of uh, deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners whom I am the foremost. Christ came for a rescue mission to save sinners. Or if we could narrow the Google search for the purposes of our time together this morning, Christ came to save liars. Oh, and lots of other things as well, but I don't want to, I want to lose my train of thought. Stay focused, Joe. For any and all who have lied, for any and all who feel the, the gravity of the devastating truth, the condemning truth that all liars suffer the fate of eternal damnation, for, for all who hear and receive the devastating truth, the condemning truth that all liars will be outside the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth, for all liars hear this truth. This is true truth. This is trust trustworthy truth, deserving of full acceptance that Christ has come for you. The prophet Isaiah, in predicting the arrival and the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, says this, says lots of things, but says this, this Jesus who has come to rescue liars, it says in Isaiah 53, 9, that there was no deceit found in his mouth. He never lied. I would suggest to you that he's, he was incapable of lying. He never wanted to. 
He never felt like he had to. It wasn't even a part of his nature, if you would. There was no deceit, nothing false, no lie whatsoever in our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he went to the cross, the very place where the strokes of God's justice was unleashed upon liars. There at the cross, this sinless, truthful, honest Lord Jesus Christ bore up under our sins, taking the curse, the condemnation, the punishment of our sins. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24 tells us, he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. For every lie that you and I have spoken, for every lie that you and I have mumbled and uttered, for every lie, whether it was a lie sophisticatedly done under the notion of some sort of a ruse and oath, or whether it was just a plain lie without any sort of qualifications, for every lie that would condemn us and bring God's justice and judgment upon us, our Lord absorbed that condemnation upon his body hanging upon that tree. So that people like you and I, in having God's judgment diverted to Jesus rather than stayed upon us, then you and I would receive pardon because Christ's blood was shed for us. It was shed for every lie. We've told. But Jesus' death on the cross has done more. I, I say this not to minimize the pardon, but Jesus' death on the cross is, is, is omni-effective in what it accomplishes. It accomplishes a full, final, and complete pardon. But Jesus' death on the cross in providing a pardon, but wait, there's more. He also provides us the new life, the new ability, the indwelling spirit of God so that we who were formerly condemned for being liars would begin to walk away from that. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free, the lion prisoner free. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 24. And then he, then he adds a result clause there, that, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Again, let's narrow that. We're not talking about all sins everywhere, all, all kinds right now. We're just trying to stay focused. But, but, but Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins that we might die to lying and live to be truth tellers. So that Paul would write in Ephesians chapter four, um, uh, therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor. What makes that possible? 
How could someone like us, former fully invested liars, begin to back away from strategies of lying? What, what would account for people like us who are all in on self-protection lying would begin to lay down our lives and no longer simply try to save ourselves and our necks, but that we would be truthful regardless of the consequences, that we would keep our commitments regardless of how, uh, how hard it is to do that, that we would carry out what we say accounts for that because when Jesus died on the cross he up and pulled us up on that cross with him and we died on that cross along with him so that what we once were is no longer that Christ died for sinners and that sinners died with Christ so just some ordinary run of the mill street fool like Lion Joe would, 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 and I'm talking about myself, not the president, but, but, but we would, we would know, we would know, long, I, I'm just, I, I don't, I don't, okay, wasn't in the notes, but um, he's got to answer for himself, I can answer for myself, but, uh, but we would no longer be that kind of person that Jesus is making us new people, pardons us and empowers us to be people who are interested in being truthful, people who are committed to being truthful, people who are practicing truth-tellers, so that we who name the name of Jesus, whenever we say yes, that's what we mean, yes. And whenever we say no, well, that's what we mean, no. It's just plain. It's plain, not because we've turned the corner our own selves and figured a few things out and a little bit more moral and a little bit more smarter, a little bit more wiser than the next guy down the street uh, who lies through his teeth. No, Jesus has rescued us. He's wiped the slate clean of all of our lies and he's now placed his spirit within us and united us to himself. And so we can be people who put away falsehood and speak the truth. We can be people who just let our yes be yes and our no be no. We can be people whose trajectory and pattern and habit of life is we are truth tellers. So Father, thank you. Thank you for the truth that you have given to us in and through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you do for people like us. We come, Father, not to glory in our own moral um, abilities. And so even as we certainly observe the devastating effects that lying has upon our culture, we also notice the devastating effects that lying has wreaked in our own hearts and lives. And we're thankful that Jesus has come to rescue liars, to pardon us, to empower us. May we honor you with our lives as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and